Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. This morning, not only to worship with brothers and sisters from Manchester, but from really all parts of the world. It's a wonderful privilege for me, and uh, it's exciting to spend some time with the Wilsons and with some of the leadership of, uh, of Grace Church to talk more about this partnership. And I do encourage your continued prayers, because as I said, uh, we originally had thought that they would plant in New England, and they decided to plant in England. And uh, obviously, with the pond, that creates some uh, complications in partnership, and just simply getting in front of each other is difficult. So uh, we're grateful very much for those prayers as we seek the gospel to go forth, uh, and, and for the Wilsons uh, in particular. So. Um, Exciting to be here and to share time in worship and time opening the Word with you together. Um, God, of course, can change our, our course, um, just as He did with the Wilsons. Um, he changed mine. I, I, I grew up, perhaps like some of you, in a more or less Christian household. My parents came to faith when I was about five years old, and uh, we did the obligatory church search and landed finally in a Baptist church, and uh, we attended dutifully. I don't know uh, why we were supposed to, but uh, I knew that uh, we were supposed to. And uh, in all of my youthful wisdom and teenage humility, I I sort of left the church experience saying, well, this is incredibly unimpressive. I don't really need this. The church seemed to me to be a sort of social club for Christians, and not a very good one. And so when I went off to college, I was quite content to sort of keep it between me and Jesus. And uh, I had Christian friends and, and, and sometimes would participate in some of the campus ministries, but more or less, it was sort of the Lone Ranger Christian. How American can you get? But um, the Lord profoundly changed my mind on that to the point now that I've, I've, I've accepted what I took as his call to ministry. I remember when I was in college, and I finally started plugging into church my last year at school. And a friend of mine said to me, James, have you ever thought about pastoral ministry? I believe I, I used an expletive to say no. Uh, never. Never will I be a pastor. Uh, and yet here I am, a pastor, and very much involved in planting churches. And so what the Lord convinced me of, I hope in some small measure to convince you of here this morning... Uh, And that is this, the church exists to be profoundly impressive to the world. Not impressive in its towering cathedrals or its ornate vestments of the clergy. We're rather dull here, Mike. Um, Or our elaborate liturgies necessarily, but far more in its way of life and in its everyday witness. The church exists in God's economy to compellingly substantiate, beautifully demonstrate, and eloquently articulate the gospel before a watching world. But of course, the reality for many of us in our experience is that all too often, the church is unimpressive, unremarkable, and utterly forgettable. Why be a part of it? Why plant new ones? Why bother? What was undeniably impressive to the audience that Paul was writing to was the temple of Diana, or the temple of Artemis. And uh, there's a model in Turkey of the 
of the, of the, the third version of the temple had been rebuilt three times. Uh, that was the most impressive version. Antipater of Sidon, who compiled the list of the seven wonders of the world, famously described the temple of Artemis in these, way, in these words. I've set my eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots and the statue of Zeus by the Alephaeus, by the hanging and the hanging gardens, the Colossus of the Sun, the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked an aught so grand. The new temple that he was describing, the second temple, was, built, was about 115 meters long. Uh, for those that have, like me, not been metricated, is that the word? Uh, 377 feet. Uh, 46 meters high, or wide rather, that's 151 meters wide. Um, and it was supposedly the first temple built entirely of marble. Its columns stood 13 meters or 40 feet high. But that temple was eventually burned down and it was rebuilt later. And then even more impressively, 137 meters long, 69 meters wide, 18 meters or 60 feet high with more than 127 columns. It was impressive. But Paul here teaches, rather, the church is to be impressive. And the first thing he says is the church is the household of God. And by that, I think Paul means two things. When he says to Timothy, look, I'm writing you these things. In the event that I am delayed, you may know how the household of God is to be conducted, how men and women are to conduct themselves within the household of God. And the first is the very simple and familial language of the house, the home. It is the family of God, where the family of God gather and, and where we are children of God together and we sit at the table of Jesus and we feast and we enjoy His grace and His kindness and we share that grace and kindness with each other as His children. But there's also a, a kind of uh, a home economics, if you will, and it, it, a, a, an administration of the household. Every family needs to be run. It needs to be organized. It needs to have a plan. It needs to have a budget, right? There's, you have to run the household. And so there is a household uh, of God that has an administrative implication as well. There are stewards over that household uh, that are leaders of the church who are called to run not only their own households well, but also the household of the church to manage it wisely and under the authority of God. And moreover, this home uh, is to not only administer its own affairs, but to advance the divine administration. Paul refers to it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, where he says the false teachers who are uh, coming out of Ephesus, some of them may have been leaders in the church, uh, were actually promoting not the administration of God, he says, or not the economy of God, uh, but something quite different. But we are, in, through the good and healthy teaching, to promote the administration of God, which is by faith. We see the same picture when Paul writes to the Ephesians his letter. And in Ephesians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it real quick. Verse 19, he says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so there you see it. It's both a structure that's being built, but it's also the home of God in which he dwells, the dwelling place of God. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, writes, There are good reasons why God should call the church his house. For not only has he received us as his sons by the grace of adoption, but he himself dwells in the midst of us. It's a holy place, the church. Because God dwells among his people. It's as an administrative component, Paul has just dealt with the organization and leadership of the church. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, he's talked about these stewards over the household. He's talked about the overseers who are to, to manage the church, to manage its affairs and to lead it, as well as the deacons who lead by serving the church. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, he talks about the different roles of men and women in the church. Now, this wasn't terribly impressive in and of itself. If you look at the, the hierarchy that ran the house of Artemis, the temple of Diana, it was far more impressive. You had a, a, a head priest over it called, uh, interesting name, Megabizos. How's that for a name? And then he had, he, he had these, well, they were called Essenes, but they were rulers who were chosen from city council members, city officials, who, who served for a year. And they had three different classes of these kinds of leaders. What they did is obscure to us now. But a whole host of, of male servants. And then you had a whole host of women servants, priestesses of the, of the, of the temple. They were called, interesting, Melissae, Melissa's. Uh, which is Greek for bees. The emblem of the city of Ephesus was the bee. I just learned yesterday that is the emblem of Manchester. They were busy bees buzzing about the temple all the time, running its affairs. It was a very impressive operation. But there's a point to this leadership. This leadership was to promote a function and character of the church that Paul describes in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. You'll, you'll note, first off, that the primary focus of leadership qualifications in chapter 3 was character. The church father, St. Jerome, said many build churches nowadays, their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their, uh, their ceilings glittering with gold, their altars studded with jewels, yet the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid. Paul directs all of his attention to the quality of leadership, the kind of men and women who are just called to serve the church. Because the church is to be marked by a particular character, the order of this household is to be marked by a kind of character that was impressive. The women were to be ordained, were to be uh, uh, um, to uh, adorn themselves not with fancy dress, but rather good works. They were to be morally beautiful people. Likewise, the men, when they gathered, were not to show their, how macho they were with their fists raised and to fight and be contentious, but to raise their hands 
in, in holiness and peace and in prayer. They were peaceable men. And they were to pray not just for themselves, but for all men. Paul says in chapter 2, pray for all people, rulers and authorities and all those who rule. And then he says, for there is one God and one mediator between man and God. There is to be a universal concern of the church in its gatherings. It's not just concerned with its own interior home economics, but it is run so as to minister to its world. The church is ordered and to be led so as to impress the truth into the world. Mark Dever, who's a pastor in the States, in his book on the, how the church is to be organized, makes this provocative statement. He says, the whole point of leadership in the church is to bring glory to God by commending the truth to outsiders. That's the whole point. How leaders lead the church is to so order the church in its life together that by the character of its life, it will commend the gospel to a watching world. That's the whole point. It's not just to keep a budget. It's not just to preach a good sermon. It's not just simply to sort of make sure nobody's complaining too much. It's to ensure that the church is such a character in its gatherings and in its scatterings that it is beautiful before a watching world. That's the whole point of leadership. That's the whole point of the order of the church. Well, secondly, the church is to be impressive as the assembly of the living God. And by the way, before I move on, to that, let, me, let me just sort of uh, push that down a little further. We're not just talking about the leadership of the church as elders and deacons, but also life group leaders. That's what we call them here, right? Life group, okay. Small groups, fellowship groups, community groups, gospel communities. Uh, you gotta, you got to get the right one. It's life group. Um, but those are critical. Those are critical places where leadership is exercised. And, and, and that's a question I'd ask of your life groups. Are we cultivating a community in our life group that's beautiful, that's commendable, and that is not just concerned with our own interior affairs. It's good that a life group cares for itself. We must do that. The world will know we are his disciples by our love for each other and how we care for each other. But it should also be very concerned with all those that Christ is concerned with. So secondly, the church is uh, to be impressive as the assembly of the living God. Oftentimes... When the, new, when, the new, when the scriptures speak of the living God, that particular phrase, it's a very uh, 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 repeated phrase throughout the Old and New Testament, it's often to contrast God with the false gods of the idols. He is the living God, not like the lifeless idols who can only sit and do no good. They cannot move, they cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot give answer, they certainly cannot affect change. Our God is the living God. Paul uses, says this to the Corinthians. He says, What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Artemis was the, the most prominent idol of Ephesus. It was the pride and joy of the city. And yet Paul comes rolling into Ephesus and does little more than simply preach the living God as revealed in Jesus and disrupts the idols. Turn in your Bibles. Keep your, your, your place there in 1 Timothy. But turn in your Bibles 
to Acts. I'm sorry, I don't have the page number. If I get there quick enough, I can tell you. Acts chapter 19, verse 23 and following. So Acts is after the Gospel of John and before Romans, after the four Gospels and before Paul's letters. Acts 19, verse 23 and following. That is page 1116, 1116. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, which was the ancient name for Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. Idolatry is good money. If you want to know what the idols of a city is, ask, where's the money spent? Where does the money come from? So, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen, He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. I'll, I'll leave you to answer whether he is concerned with the majesty of the goddess or more his bank account. But verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristocrus. Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion, and some were shouting one thing and some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence with his hands in order to make a defense. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! What an uproar. And how did Paul create such an uproar? What a mess he made. It's interesting that later in verse 37, even the rulers say, Listen, These men have committed no sacrilegious or blasphemous act against our goddess. Paul didn't go in in name-calling. He didn't go into the city and go, this god is a fraud. He went in and preached Jesus. Do you remember when he went to Athens, if you're familiar with Mars Hill? His opening line was, I see you're very religious. And there's a god here, an unknown god. Let me tell you about the unknown god. So Paul went in not not to... throw in a gospel bomb, but went in with grace and with fidelity to a simple gospel message and preached Jesus and the resurrection, and it created all this havoc. Paul's approach with the false teachers at Ephesus is very similar, though he's far more strong with them because they are claiming to be teachers of the church, and so he calls for them to be rebuked and silenced. Nevertheless, what is his anecdote to bad teaching but good teaching? Faithful, patient, good teaching. 
But there's more to that than simply rehearsing sound doctrine and living good moral lives as leaders were to do by setting an example for the flock. When Paul says that we are the church of the living God, not only is he contradistinguishing the living God from the lifeless idols, but he's also speaking of the power and presence of that living God among us. And oftentimes when you hear living God used in the Scriptures, it, it is to underline the power and presence of this real God who's really here among us. So, for instance, in Hebrews we read, you've, you've not come to what can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet. No, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly or the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You might recall Abel's blood cried out for revenge. Jesus' blood cries out mercy. We've come to that kind of assembly where the living God is presence. And, and we're not just the earthly expression of this heavenly entourage of Christ, but the church is where God dwells on earth. It's where God is seen and heard. The invisible God, the ineffable God, expressed and where He is experienced, where God is known and where He is made known. That's the church. That is impressive. <laughs> and what better way to unearth and destroy our idols, our false gods, than to have a face-in-face -face encounter with the real thing? There's nothing like coming among the saints, whether it's in our life group or it's on Sunday mornings or it's just over coffee, and we, we just faithfully speak the word of Jesus to each other in the face of our idols. And we get exposed. And by His grace, we repent. We need to name and repent of our modern idols. We don't worship gods of uh, cast in statues, but we have our idols, don't we? In America, our two biggest idols, I would say, is comfort and control. I love comfort, and I love control, and I will worship at that altar as long as God lets me. I don't know, what, what, what would you say the idols of Manchester are? Perhaps the, the idols of England. And are, they are particular. In the South, uh, one of the big idols is a particular kind of comfort. In the South, unlike uh, perhaps in Manhattan, men and women work not in order for status, the status of income or the status of position, but for recreational funds. <laughs> Our church... If they can go to the beach or to the mountains, they will. And so Sunday mornings is always a battle of who will be there, <laughs> you know. One of the big battles is the, we love comfort. We love vacation. We love taking trips to the beach and the mountains, and we'll take it as much as we can. What are the idols in our culture? What are the idols in our own hearts? And will we ourselves be oriented as the church of the living God through the gospel to His presence? I had a, a great privilege of ministering in the same city where Sinclair Ferguson was for a number of years. He was in Columbia at First Presbyterian Church, and he and I were talking about the idols of the South. 
And he shared this with me, and I, and I wrote it down. It was, his quote was so good. He was talking about the idols even in, in Christianity in the South. And he says, you know, of course, we cannot knock down every idol one by one. Calvin's striking statement that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols means the task would be too great to deal with each idol individually. Moreover, we find they keep popping back up even after we slap them down. But what we must do is to erect an altar to the living God. And over time, as Ignatius of Antioch comments in one of his letters, our worship will destroy the temples of the idols. Our worship will destroy the temples of the idols. So what do we need? We need in our own lives through the gospel word and gospel community to experience Jesus together. Because when you and I gather, or two or more are gathered, Jesus is there. The living God. And he is active. And as we speak the word of truth to each other, he speaks. And he changes. And he calls us out. And he comforts. And he encourages. And he exhorts. And he changes us. But we also need to plant churches. In our world, through the gospel mission and church planning, we need to set up altars of Jesus all over the city, all over this country, all over the world. Because it is only by the worship of Jesus that the temples of the gods are destroyed. Thirdly, the church is impressive as a pillar and buttress of the truth. Um, one translation says, of course, the ones we have here says, foundation. And that's because the word is a very strange one. It never occurs until Paul. Some have wondered that Paul may have coined it. Uh, but uh, the word uh, does uh, appear later in Christian writings, probably from, borrowed from Paul. And it's related to a Greek word that can mean firm or steadfast. And so some would say, okay, so this is a foundation. Others say, no, it's something that makes firm or steadfast. It's the buttress. Either way, I think the image Paul is trying to communicate is the same. The church is the pillar and the buttress or the foundation of the truth. He's painting it, isn't he, in temple terms. I can't help but think the Ephesian audience would have immediately thought of Artemis, the temple of Artemis, with all of its many pillars. Painting this architectural picture of the church. The church here as a temple. When what was a temple? What's the point of a temple? Why make temples so grandiose? Because temples were a sort of visible expression of the invisible gods. It was, it was an earthly manifestation or embodiment of heavenly majesty and divine glory. So they made the temples as awesome as possible to demonstrate the majesty of the gods. And so is the church, a visible expression. Now, some here think Paul got the order wrong. He says the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Isn't it vice versa? Isn't the truth rather the foundation of the church? In fact, some of the church fathers, when they quote this, they, they, they flip-flop it because it just sounds wrong to say that the church is the foundation of the truth. When we know that, as Paul, as I read earlier, Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, right? It's built on the truth. But, as one commentator puts it, what Paul means here is the living God has established his church to display the embodiment of the truth. Just as the temple, a temple, the temple of Artemis was the embodiment of Artemis' glory, so the church is to be an embodiment of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. 
John Stott writes this, the purpose of pillars is not only to hold the roof firm, but to thrust high its roof so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance. The inhabitants of Ephesus had a vivid illustration of this in the temple of Diana or Artemis. It boasted 100 ionic columns, each over 18 meters high, which together lifted its massive shining marble roof. Just so, the church holds the truth aloft so that it can be seen and admired by the world. The church is to be profoundly impressive, to show off the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The church upholds the truth, grounding it in the world, giving it a real flesh and blood expression. So people see the church and go, so that's what Jesus is like. So that's what the Trinity is like. That's how the Trinity loves each other. That's how Jesus loves the church. That's how Jesus loves me. The church is to be this, not impressive in terms of its material expression, but in terms of its relational and moral expression, a gorgeous, impressive picture of the gospel. The gospel seen, not just heard. But in order to do that, if the church is to uphold the truth, of course the church must stand under it. And so indeed the gospel is our foundation, even as we embody it in the world. This is the primary concern, it seems to me, of Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, and I understand he just wrapped up Titus. So these will sound familiar to you, but Paul's very concerned with how the world experiences the church. So I'll just read some verses, just at random, from the, the so-called pastoral epistles. He wants men and women of the church to be thought well of by outsiders, to give the adversary no occasion for slander, so that teaching the name of God might not be maligned, that the Word of God might not be reviled, that they might be above reproach, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Or, Titus 2, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior. We are to adorn the gospel by the manner and character of our life together as the people of God, both corporately together and individually in how we live our lives in the world. That's what Paul means when he says the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. It substantiates the gospel in the world. It makes what seems invisible and unreal to a world, lost in unbelief, real and vivid. And this was indeed the, 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 the mission of the early church. One uh, missiologist by the name of Michael Goheen writes, uh, the most characteristic element of mission in the early church of the first three centuries was the attractive power of the local congregation. Isn't that interesting? That was the most power, that was the engine that drove mission of the first three centuries. The attractive power of the local congregation. Your beauty as the people of God. And indeed, you see that when you read the fathers, they boast about the character of the church. Athanagoras, who was an apologist of the second century, says, With us, you'll find many unlettered people, unlearned, tradesmen, old women, who through, though unable to express in words the advantage of our doctrine, demonstrate by acts the value of their truth. 
For they do not rehearse great speeches, but they evidence good deeds. When struck, they don't strike back. When robbed, they do not sue. To those who ask, they give, and they love their neighbors as themselves. Similarly, a third century father or writer named Minicus Felix writes, writes, we do not proclaim great words, great rhetoric. We live them. How's that for an argument? We live them. Julian the apostate who followed Constantine, uh, trying to convert the empire back to paganism, referred to the Christian faith as being specially advanced through their loving service rendered to strangers. And he goes on to say, it's a scandal. There's not a single Jew among these Galileans who's a beggar. And the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. It's embarrassing. He says, while those who belong to us look in vain for help from us, who should give it to them? The church was deeply impressive. And it ticked Julian off. It ticked many of the pagans off. I love this. In the second century, a critic of Christianity named Celsus, who was a Greek philosopher, was debating with the great church father, Origen. And he said, listen, Jesus is just a man who through legend became God, like Hercules and Dionysus. I love Origen's response. Oh, really? Can they support their claim to be gods by showing that there are a people that have been reformed in their morals and have become better as a result of their life and teaching? Because we can. They claim to be gods. Where are their people? Jesus is God. Look at his people. Do we dare make that argument today? Dear God, I hope we can. Build these kinds of churches is what we must do. We must be these kinds of churches, and then we need to litter the world with these kinds of churches. Nothing other than the church of Jesus. But how will we do that? That's, of course, the, the question, isn't it? Okay, that sounds great. That's great and fine. But how? With what power will we do this? With what genius? With what greatness will we do this? We'll turn back to 1 Timothy 3.16 with me. And I've lost my, my page here. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. You know, the Greek, it literally reads, beyond all question, great is the mystery of godliness. I wonder if Paul here is echoing the chant of the Ephesians, great is the temple of Artemis. And Paul says, rather, great is the mystery of godliness. And what is the mystery of godliness? It's nothing other than chapter 3, verse 9, the mystery of our faith. It's nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. Paul often refers to the gospel as the mystery. What had long been kept secret, though revealed in the prophets, had been kept secret until now when Christ has come and brought enlightenment and the floodlight shines on all the prophets and we see clearly Christ in the Old and Christ in the New Testament. This is the mystery of the gospel. And it's, this is the greatness of the church. This is the greatness of what it embodies. It's not Artemis of the Ephesians. It's this truth that it embodies that is great and powerful and genius. And it's this simple truth that's our only hope. 
And you'll note this truth isn't an it, it's a who. Did you notice that? Great is the mystery from which true godliness springs. He, or some translations, who appeared. Look how great it is. He appeared in the flesh. God in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit and the resurrection from the dead. He was seen by angels. Angels stopped to take notice of Him. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in all the world. Mike just rehearsed all the nations where men and women and children are turning to Jesus. He was believed on in all the world. He is great. And He was taken up in glory. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of the Father. So brothers and sisters, with what greatness will we do this? With this greatness. In the proclamation of Jesus, the glorious Savior who saves all men, especially those who believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we seek to be a church that makes much of your truth. We know and confess it is you alone who makes us impressive. We cannot make ourselves impressive. We cannot make ourselves beautiful. We cannot make ourselves powerful in weakness, but you can. We cannot be in and of ourselves compelling in a hostile culture, but you can make us compelling. Lord Jesus, restore the people of Manchester. Restore the city. Reveal Jesus and make this church a beautiful picture, a jewel in your crown of the, the glorious gospel. Fulfill the mission of Grace Church. Make impressive the Wilson's small church plan as it starts off with just a handful of folks. Transform us that we as men and women might be pillars in your temple. Lord, may we worship forever at this altar, we pray. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.